Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. We want to welcome you all to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast at our new day and time. Wednesday at 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And one reason why we did this is because we wanted to open things back up to the West Coast audience as well, as well as everybody else in between, like Texas. We know we have a, a lot of folks coming in from Texas. You know, we're excited to have you. and We wanted to make it easier for everyone to join, possibly during your lunch break or whatever the case is. So we thank you very much for that. We appreciate you being part of the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast family. And uh, we've got some exciting things we're planning on rolling out this year, and we're happy to have you as part of that. So thank you very much for being in attendance here today. Now, one thing that um, we are going to do a little bit different today as we kind of get rolling is we're going to have a different show. Other than the normal show where I'm kind of doing the interviewing, we're going to kind of flip the script, and Uriah is going to be doing kind of a quasi-interview of me, but this is more of like a fireside chat. And what we decided to do for this particular show is there are a lot of people who are really trying to get started in this game. And it's like the Grand Canyon, right? You have people on one side who are, you know, doing billion dollars worth of business. You have people on the other side that are like, I, there's no way in the world I could get over this chasm and really get into the game and start getting deals done. So one thing we wanted to focus on today is how can we get deals done? How are deals getting done? And what are some of the challenges that individuals face? So number one, you don't give up when you face those challenges. And then number two, if you're aware of them ahead of time, you can put safeguards and other uh, strategies in place in order to be more effective going forward. So that's one of the things that we wanted to cover today and discuss about. And so uh, Uriah is here to discuss that with us. And I wanted to mention this also. Why Uriah? We know a lot of people. Right. So I'm going to tell you why Uriah has, unlike a lot of us, and I, I got to even put myself in this bucket. We've gone to a lot of shows and seminars and workshops and all this other stuff. And you go home and life happens. Right. And you get nothing done, no progress. And then you look a year later and it's like, well, what have I accomplished? Well, Uriah has been one of those rare individuals who actually has put forth some effort in getting things done. He's actually uh, put properties on the contract. He's, you know, taking me to lunch. He's, he's done a lot of different things to try to get that groundwork going and in place in order to get deals done. So he's not just talking to talk. He's walking to walk and trying to implement the things that he's learned at REAP and, and, and in other organizations. He's done a lot of networking. So I thought he would be a great person to talk about some of the challenges that we face. And, um, and I see Quinn is here as well. As we open up for the afternoon, excuse me, not the afternoon, but the second part of this at about 1230, we want your questions also as to what you're seeing in the marketplace, what challenges you're facing, and let's see if we can talk through some of these and kind of address some of them and see, you know, what really needs to happen in order to get these deals done and what is it taking, and we'll let you in kind of behind the curtain on some things that are happening as well. So Uriah, welcome. We're happy to have you today. And a lot of people on the call know you, so Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yes, absolutely. So I'm Uriah Robinson. I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, and then moved to Atlanta to uh, get an MBA at Georgia Tech. Uh, since then, my background is in engineering. I worked in a number of different roles, more, more specifically in 
creation of new um, products and what you would call new product development. And so since that time, I've been working to create a lane within the commercial real estate space, more specifically through Project Reap. Project Reap was a great introduction, um, as it was for a lot of us in terms of being able to gain a comprehensive overview of commercial real estate, and then also transitioning over into the Georgia CCIM chapter. And so if you think about the combination of those two, they helped to shape my initial uh, framework around the pursuit of commercial real estate. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's that's really good. I admire you for uh, for trying to get out there and, and get some things done, but we don't we don't want to necessarily dig into all your stuff. So you know we'll certainly respect that. Tell me what what are some of the things that you're hearing out here on the street? You know when you talk to your peers and others, what challenges are they facing as it relates to getting deals done and really being able to get started with their careers in in real estate? Yeah, so that's a I think that's a loaded question. I think that there's a number of different things that some of my peers face. I would say in terms of Primarily funding. Funding is always the top uh, area of concern and the top hurdle that a lot of people face. And so that's one of the things that we look into in terms of, you know, what is the best funding approach? How do you go about creating an opportunity that fits the the, the overall deal that you have at hand? And and that's one of the things that we wanted to always look into, which is how do you, how do you start shaping and, and looking into that funding um, ahead of time? Because in some cases it could be a chicken and egg conversation. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that's one of the things that that um, that I will say that that's a big thing. Another thing is a lot of focus on the um, different multifamily, as we know, it's a hot area right now, and then also looking into transitioning to other areas as well. So I will say that those are the key things that I'm hearing for the most part. And then also just looking at where's the economy headed? You know, as you know, Joe, oftentimes we hear a lot about all of the different challenges in the market and, you know, the the Fed is constantly raising interest rate and how does that have an impact on valuations on different properties and projects? How did that transcend? How did that translate into the ability for companies or um, developers to take on deals because of that? And then also adding in all of the post-pandemic effect and how the market has evolved since the pandemic with a lot of the reopening plays where, where to play. And so that's one of the things I wanted to run by you, which is, you know, based on that, you know, from your perspective, from the from an economist lens, you know, what have you seen to be an area that a lot of individuals are starting to transition over into from a commercial real estate standpoint? I got three things down here and let's kind of break these down individually. So you you mentioned funding, you mentioned the economy, and you also mentioned other asset classes, if I heard that correctly. Right. Uh, was, was that correct? Other asset classes? Okay. And, and what was your thinking around other asset classes uh, when you talk about challenges that, you know, your peer group are facing or just anyone? Yeah, I would say primarily just looking into understanding which asset class is much more accessible to some degree. For example, we all know how industrial took off but the accessibility for new developers may not have been as easily attainable. For example, if you're new to the to the industry and you're just not trying to get started, or versus if you look at multifamily as an asset class and, and, and being able to segue into understanding all of the requirements from a development standpoint, if you do have certain 
requirements that require a certain amount of, I would say, affordable living, affordable housing, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of those different things that you have to really truly navigate. And when you tie those two relative to the, 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 the overall cost of time and the cost of equity, cost of debt, then it's like, well, which one makes more sense to try to dive into? And I think that that's something that oftentimes for new developers, that's one of the key challenges, which is really trying to focus in on which asset class to pursue. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. We'll start there because the, the money side of this is something that is that could take up three hours, right? <laughs> so <laughs> let's start with the asset class part. So here's the thing. First of all, there's a rule of thumb that we all kind of need to keep in mind as it relates to commercial real estate. And this is something that was taught to me by one of my buddies um, who's done some very large projects up in New York. And it's what does the money want? Right. What does the money want? So if you think of that always, you know, it's, it's almost like the Wayne Gretzky thing of swimming to the puck, you know, or not swimming to the puck, skating to the puck. Where is it going? And then if you identify what the money wants, you can kind of skate to it. So let's let's start there and think about it. For an example, why did industrial get hot and retail get weak? Well, it's pretty simple, right? It's the Amazon effect. Everybody started saying, well, I could just buy this stuff online. It really started with, if you think about like your best buys and your circuit cities and places like this, where people went out, they looked at the stuff, they said, yeah, this is cool, but I could get a better price online. So they touch and feel it at the store, go home, order it online and have it delivered right to their home. And because of that, obviously, industrial took off because more and more places needed to store the stuff and not just have a place to show it, right? And as you saw, certain places like Circuit City and some others actually went out of business because of that. Now, what catapulted it even higher? Well, very simply, COVID, right? So you have COVID breakout, nobody's in stores, people can't come to work, they don't wanna wear a mask all day, so what happens? Hey, it's a whole lot easier to just have this stuff ordered and delivered to my house. That further widened the gap between retail and, and industrial. So as a result, industrial took off. That's really easy for everybody to see. So with that taking off, what does the money want? Well, the money wants returns. They see retail going down. They see industrial going up. Obviously, a lot of money started chasing industrial. How to get into those deals? Give me a second. We'll talk about that in a minute. Multifamily. This is a little bit different, but I want to talk about some of the economic reasons why multifamily took off as well. If you look at what happened with the housing market, as we know, we got to a point most recently where prices were accelerating so fast that people were overbidding for homes. And it became a situation where the people who had a lot of equity were able to buy homes and people who didn't have a lot of actual cash to put down on a property that was over purchase price were out in the cold. So what happens in a case like that, either they stay where they were or if they're relocating to another city, they have to go into multifamily housing. So that's number one. The other reason why multifamily should continue to accelerate at this point in time is because the Fed is deliberately trying to slow down the housing market, right? because of that hyperinflation that we saw in housing. So as a result, if they keep raising interest rates, very simply, fewer people can afford the homes. And if fewer people can afford the homes, they're going to be forced into renting more apartments. But you might not want to go into a class C apartment building. Therefore, value-add opportunities started to take off as well as new construction opportunities started to take off as well. 
you really can't do new development of a C-class product. That's very difficult to do, right? So you tend to wind up building A-grade properties, and then you do your value-add on your C-grade properties and move those up to a B. And that's generally what we see there. So those are the main asset classes. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that there is obviously the very familiar rule of thumb that you buy low and sell high, right? So if there is a reason why you think retail might come back or there might be a reason for it to come back, then yeah, maybe there are some opportunities to invest in retail. You may also want to invest in retail where there are grocery stores or services that you can't do remotely, like you can't get a haircut over over the internet, right? You can't get your nails done over the internet. You're generally not going to go out and buy fried chicken over the internet. So these different things that you see in retail corridors will open up opportunities for retail, but you got to know where to go. And then one last thing I want to add also, Uriah, as we talk about retail, there's a project that we're involved in, which I think is going to be, if successful, can be replicated around the country. And what it is, is installing and building multifamily housing at malls as part of the mall complex if you will, of of that overlay district. And so because so many malls have been struggling, if you put a new group of of housing at the mall where when people come home, they can actually just walk through an interior tunnel right into the mall, a lot of those services that are there should help restore a lot of those businesses, especially if they're things like we talked about where you have food, you have um, personal services and things like that, not necessarily clothing and electronics those retail establishments should do well. So I know that's a long answer, but did that give, give a little detail? Yeah, no, that was great, Joel. I think you hit the, I think you hit on a lot of different angles there. It's interesting that you make mention of the installation of the multifamily at malls. I know that a lot of uh, market analysts do speak on the fact that retail is becoming much more creative Mm-hmm. In terms of transitioning, like you just mentioned, um, you're starting to see a lot of um, former department stores turn into hospitals. It's interesting, the concept that you just mentioned is um, taken off very highly in, in the Dallas Metroplex. Don't see it as much in the Atlanta area, but that is taken off in the Dallas area due to the fact of a lot of antiquated real estate that's much more costly to demolish it mm-hmm. than it is to upgrade it. But I'm curious to see or to know if you know of any other creative concepts such as that, because oftentimes due to changes or requirements and overlays, you may have to figure out a way to tie something in to something traditional in order to meet certain requirements by the state or by the county. Have you seen any other creative concepts like that that are taken off in commercial? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, I'm thinking of a project that we're involved in as well, where the city said, well, if you develop this, you're going to take away parking and we already have an issue with parking where there's not enough. So as part of the deal, in order to get the land, in order to do the multi-family development, we have to actually build a parking deck as well. So that's one thing that can be done in a situation like that. There's other scenarios as well where you can, there was another one that a scenario I was thinking about, but there, there are a lot of things where you have to really find out what the what the county wants. And if the county or the city, the municipality is willing to even kick in some money or perhaps give a tax credit or perhaps give a, you know, some some type of other value add that helps with the capital stack as part of you bringing in 
retail or restaurants or something else that's going to get the traffic count up, then you can um, put something together. So it's really going to just talk about or, or relate to creativity and sitting down with the municipality, finding out exactly what they want and seeing a way that you can kind of weave that in. And if you say, look, you know, we're happy to weave this in, but the only way for this to pencil is you donate the land to us in order to do this. Or you give us a 10-year tax abatement on the taxes in order to get this done. Those are some of the ways that you can manipulate the, the negotiation in order for it to work out in your favor. Hey, good feedback, Joe. Yeah. And so one of the other things is that, in addition to what I may mention earlier about what people were talking about, is people were trying to anticipate what this next recession is going to look like from a commercial real estate standpoint. and. A lot of people, or when I say people, more like analysts, think of your CNBCs, your MSNBCs, are speculating that the market has a lot of liquidity, but because of there's a lot of pent-up demand for that liquidity, but because of the fact that the cost of borrowing, overall cost of capital has increased so much that a lot of big banks are essentially waiting on the side and as compared to traditional lending in order to see what the market is going to lend. So... Unlike the previous recession and people speculating about this upcoming recession, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are in terms of new developers and new people who wanted to enter commercial real estate, how they can navigate some of those challenges that are perceived to come this year, which is higher, higher rates of borrowing, higher cost of development, higher equipment. And so we'd love to get your thoughts on how to, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of do we envision seeing that again or do you Ambitious in a different flavor of that. Well, you see a different flavor of, of that. Are you in that again? Are you talking about compared to the recession of 08 09? Correct. Or, yeah. Okay. You know, it, it's interesting because the recession of 08 09, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I was ready to just sit down and wait for the end of the world to come. I was like, okay, I guess the asteroid is going to hit or whatever, <laughs> you know. But it was, it was unbelievable when you start seeing institutions like AIG about to shut down. And, uh, you know, Georgia led the country in bank failures. And I mean, you're like, okay, imagine a world where there's no banking institutions and there's no insurance to protect your stuff if there's a fire or a flood or anything else or theft, right? I mean, everything just collapses. So that I don't see happening this go around if even we have a recession, you know, to be honest with you, I was listening to uh, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank this morning. He was on um, on one of the networks, uh, I think CNN. You know, there was a, a lot of good points that were brought up because you look at it, the unemployment rate is extremely low, which means people are working. The additional jobs that were added over this last cycle are extremely high. The real estate market, as it relates to single family housing, is a trailing indicator which means that the Fed is going to continue to hike rates because the record, the stats that they're using still show inflation, even though it has already stopped in a lot of markets, right? So there's a lot going on right now, and it's, it's almost uncharted territory for inflation to be where it is and actually for so many people to be working, and yet and still the Fed is still raising interest rates. So that could throw us into a recession, but the point is, is that if you look at the amount of spending by consumers is still very high, you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, pent-up demand, uh, as you were mentioning. 
Pamela Armstead says they're trying to crash the market. Well, hopefully they're not trying to crash the market. So we'll <laughs> we'll see what happens. I don't think things are going to get that bad. But here's here's where the challenge is, Uriah. I want to talk about that. Yes, there is a lot of money that's waiting on the sidelines, uh, especially in new development. A lot of the deals that I personally have are new development deals. And what's happening is we're having to go back and get these deals repriced by our banking partners on the construction debt because rates are changing, right? And so if you ran your model at a 5% rate and now the rate is seven, the numbers have changed, right? The returns have changed. Everything has changed. So you got to go in and rerun those numbers. Then just last week, I've, I've gotten calls from equity investors that are basically saying, hey, you know, because of the, the risk model, we only want to do much larger deals at this point because we're going to be a little bit conservative and we want more of a buffer in those deals. Another variable that I want to talk to you guys about as well is a return on cost. Just about any development deal you do, you're going to run into a conversation of return on cost. And generally, the desire for most investors is for there to be a 100 basis point a gap between your return on cost and the actual deal, or your actual cost and the return on cost in the actual deal. So what does that mean? Well, let's say if your cost to actually do the deal is, you know, let's just say a, a, a 5%. You What you want to be able to return to investors is, let's say, a 7% return on cost as opposed to a 5% in what we call untrended. So simply meaning that you have that, that buffer there. So if something does go wrong in the rock market, you have a little room, a wiggle room in order to adjust there and still be profitable and not be under 5%, let's say, in this particular model. What was happening is that the investors, especially the equity investors, are now moving that up. And what they're saying is that we no longer want to see a 5% return on equity we or, or in yield or return on costs. We want to see that now at 6%, 7%, you know, which means now your actual return on costs on the deal needs to be 8%. 9%, right? And the only way you could get a higher return on cost, you could do a couple things. You got to get your costs down or you have to raise rents even higher than what you had them in your model. So now if you're going to raise rates, you got to go back to the multifamily asset managers and say, hey, rerun these numbers for me and tell me what the current rates are in this particular market and how much juice we can squeeze out of this. And a lot of times those numbers just don't pencil any longer. So there's going to be a lot of multifamily deals that will stall that are development deals. And if those deals stall and people can't buy homes because of the raise of the rising of interest rates, then what's going to happen? Right. The only thing that you really can do is you can see the fix and flip single family business take off again. You can see the build to rent business take off. And you can also see the value add business take off where people are able to buy cheap and add a lot of value add to those properties and increase the value. So I think that those are the areas where we're going to see some growth in the upcoming markets, uh, upcoming months, if the Fed continues to raise interest rates. So a little long answer there, but hopefully you know, that addressed the question. No, absolutely. And when you evaluate a deal, what do you what do you primarily focus on? I know cost of you know, what you just mentioned, cost of capital is one, but you know, it's a lot of different financial variables and metrics that different investors kind of look at. Some 
investors have a preference for one over another. You think yep. of NOI, pre-tax cash flow, think about IRR, return on cash, you know, cash on cash return. There's a lot of different variables that different investors look at. What do you typically find to be the strongest metrics for that new developers should consider when they're assessing bills? Yeah, right now, I would say that the biggest variable that is being looked at is return on costs or return on yield, because what you're able to do pretty much immediately is say, okay, this deal produces what yield? And if you say a six and you know that your investors are looking for a seven, you know, they can hang up the phone right there. They don't even have to look at the rest of the numbers. And depending on, you know, if your IRR is even a high enough number, it could be high enough. But if the return on cost number is not high enough, it could still sabotage your deal. So I would say your primary metric that you're looking at is is that return number, return on cost. Second to that would be the things that you talked about. Your internal rate of return, the internal rate of return can be adjusted up or down depending on how long you particularly plan to stay in the deal and how you model it. So if you model a 10-year return, that's going to have a lower IRR. If you do a a five to seven-year return as opposed to a 10, it's going to be better. Do a three-year, it's going to be even better. So you have a little bit of playroom there without having to adjust your hard numbers in order to, to get a juicier internal rate of return. So, you know, investors understand that, you know, you have to look at that number. But the other side of it is that if the economy is in a hole and you can't sell after three years, then that internal rate of return number goes down, which is why they're more focused on return on costs. So that, that's why it comes into play. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's great. I mean, that's, that's great feedback. And like I said, I have run into individuals who look at different metrics. Um, there are some that, you know, if the NPV, they look at different things, whether like I said, it's NPV, IRR. Some of them even look at your pre-tax cash flow and assess and maneuver the different numbers to look at different what-if scenarios. And even in a project that I'm working on, that's one of the things that I look into, that I looked into, which was, you know, what are some ways to impact the IRR? So to your point, there's a lot of different things that you could do. One of the things that I looked into was, okay, how do you potentially increase the cost of services? or the cost of the actual service that's being provided to, to customers. How does that look? Um, looking at different things such as, okay, if there's a way to continue to drive marketing to potentially get more customers to a site, what does that what if scenario look like? Mm-hmm. And then you immediately realize that there's a sweet spot that you want to try to attain to to ensure that you have a, 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 a best case scenario ideal scenario and a worst case scenario. But no, that, that's pretty neat because like I said, it's depending on who you ask, also depending on the asset type. Some people look at, you know, cap rates, as we all know. But the other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is in addition to evaluating a deal on the different metrics, you know, what are some, I know you may, you may mention earlier about different creative financing strategies for new developers, such as getting, you know, getting the county to donate the land. But in instances where that may not be the case for different markets, let's say high density markets, what have you seen throughout your career that are creative to enable new developers to, to make that jump, to make that leap? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point to um to, to address and jump into. And I didn't realize that we're already at at our halfway point. So let me answer that and then we'll we'll start taking some questions. 
I do want to go back to, to one thing real quick, and this is going to kind of dovetail into what you're asking me. Let's talk about some of these variables right quick and, and what they mean to a investor. So you talk about cap rate, for an example. Cap rate is the capitalization rate. It comes into play as it relates to what degree of return you're actually making on that property from a market standpoint. So for an example, a low cap rate basically means it's a very expensive property. The higher the cap rate, the cheaper the property is to buy from that standpoint. So if you're buying a a 10 cap, obviously your capitalization rate is, is higher than if you're buying a two cap, which might be across from Radio City Music Hall in Manhattan, right? That that might be a two cap. A 10 cap might be a an old retail building in the hood, you know, and it'd probably be higher than 10, but that kind of gives you an idea of the difference in the two. So when you're evaluating a deal, uh, you do want to pay attention to that cap rate. And what investors are generally looking for is going in, what's your cap rate when you buy it? And what do you think you can sell it at on the back end? So if you're buying it at a five, you want to be able to sell generally at a four. You're buying at a six, you want to be able to sell at a five or lower. And that's kind of the way that works. When you talk about multiple, multiple is return on on equity to the investor. Most people want to see a a two plus equity multiple, which simply means if I put a dollar in, I get two out, right? A three X equity multiple would mean I put one dollar in, I get three out. So you want to look at that. And generally, that number runs parallel with the IRR. They're, they're very similar in the way they're calculated. So those are two things. Now, you were talking about um, how do you get deals done? And, you know, it's it's tricky. You have a few different things. So number one, a lot of times you might need to reduce your basis in the deal in order for the numbers to work. So if you're buying a piece of property for a million dollars and the numbers don't pencil, but they do pencil at 800000 Maybe what you can do, as you alluded to a minute ago, Uriah, is get the seller to hold equity of $200,000 as carried equity in the deal. And then you you pay $800,000 at the closing, and then you pay them that $200,000 with a return on the back end. You know, perhaps they're part of the promote. Perhaps they'll participate in the waterfalls. You know, there's different things that can be done in order to um, get them and give them a reason, I should say, to, to give up that $200,000 in this example and stay in the deal and allow the deal to go forward. And generally, you see it on much bigger deals where it's not like $200,000 in equity. It's generally like $2 million in equity, $20 million in equity, you know, much bigger deals like that. So that's something that can be done. If that can't be done, you have to try to see if you can reduce your costs some way of getting the deal done. Maybe another general contractor. Maybe you could have the general contractor contribute equity in the deal and reduce his costs because he'll make it back as being an equity investor in the deal as well and participate from that standpoint. So that's a way to do it. Another way might be to do value-add improvements to the building. Uh, We have a deal that we're involved in financing right now out in Dallas, actually, where the owner is um, switching all of the utilities over to each individual apartment. This is a value-add deal. And in doing that, he'll be able to obviously reduce his operating costs and create a greater delta between what he's collecting in rent and what he's collecting in um, or what his overhead cost is. And when that delta increases, the value of the property increases as well in what we call um, infused equity in a case like that. So those are some different things that you can do. And I can go on and on, but that's just kind of an example because it's it's all over the board. It's really whatever you can negotiate is what you can what you can get done. 
Sounds good. Good yeah. point. Absolutely. So anything else specific or do you want to open up for a few questions? And um, if you have any questions, just go ahead and put those in the chat. There is a text here. And again, if you're in the if you're on the line, uh, there's a lot of names here that say Deneen Altride. Although, uh, Joel, everybody wishes they were Deneen, right? Very true. Very true. So <laughs> I'm glad you were able to correct that for me. <laughs> Deneen is our rock star that made this all possible today. So thank you, Deneen. We certainly appreciate it. Okay. So one of these points here, the Southern sector is experiencing very different residential results and shifting in the commercial market. Texas leads in new permits with over 20-year decline in births, secondary. Yeah, there's a lot of information here, and it actually cuts off. So whoever um, put this in here, if you want to add to your comment or raise your hand or come online. Yeah. Oh, this is How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Yes, we. Um, in addition to that, not only are we having issues with the new home market where they've overbuilt, mm-hmm. but the other indicator, which is autos, the number of um, repossessions is at an all-time high. Wow. So we know those are indications when you couple the two. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So we'll see how that, that all plays out as um, time goes along. And raising interest rates certainly isn't going to help that. So that that's interesting. All right. Well, we don't have any other questions right at this particular point. So uh, Uriah, what else are you hearing out there from folks as it relates to... Um, you know, issues and... Yeah, so I would say... Yeah, I would say you, you're starting to hear a lot of people talk about starting funds in order mm-hmm. to uh, raise capital or in order to start funds for the capital for projects. So I know a number of people that are trying to get funds kicked off so they can start making investments, pooling resources together, which I think is a great idea. Um, so that's another thing, like, should people start thinking more about pools as a way to... I mean, it makes sense to start pulling in funds to take on new deals, um, similar to syndications. I know that syndication was a, a, an approach that I initially evaluated for the project that I'm working on. But one of the key challenges is that the syndication um, that I was pursuing was this SBA 7A loan, which is an all-encompassing construction loan. However, one of the requirements is that you have to have a personal guarantor for the for the for the bulk of the of the of the actual loan amount, mm-hmm. and so if you don't already have those funds already set aside, or if you don't have a personal guarantor, then you can still raise the ask the equity, but you still SBA requires that personal guarantor, and so that really was something that made me have to go back and look at okay, what are some other ways to finance a deal without an SBA seven A, and then. Like I said, the funds, the syndication, and then just the creative financing. You already spoke on a few of those examples earlier. But I think there's just a number of different ways that people are trying to evaluate what this new market looks like from a liquidity standpoint and being able to tap into some of those resources. You oftentimes hear that there's all this excess capital laying around and it needs to be put to work. But then, you know, there's um, certain, certain lenders are having more stringent requirements. Some are starting to loosen them up. It just all depends. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that a little bit because I, I really wanted to make sure that we covered some of the issues that individuals are facing and uh, hopefully provide some ideas on how to get around those because th- this is a, a big deal. And, you know, one thing is that, um, you know, it's a it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, and that's kind of 
what your mindset has to be. I did want to address this one question from Will Smith right quick, and then and then I'll jump back to that, Uriah. But he had mentioned, and I, I actually addressed this already, but in a development deal, have you seen cases where as a landowner would partner in a deal and contribute land as an equity partner? Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. That's that's that carried equity that we're talking about, where you don't have to pay for the land, which allows you to reduce your cost of capital, not cost of capital, your cost going into the deal. And if you're able to reduce that cost because you don't have to pay for the land, or at least not all of it, then yes, they can stay in the deal as a partner and benefit from the upside in the deal. And that's an excellent way to do it, especially in a market like this, where demands are getting uh, much higher for uh, equity, you know, and, and for more uh, higher returns and deals. Quinn, let me, let me, well, let me carry cover Quinn's while I'm right here. What predictions do you have for defaults and distressed assets given the shift in rates and the impact that it is having on the highly, heavily leveraged projects? That's a very good question, Quinn. And my predictions is that this is a great time to be in the value add space because of exactly what you're talking about. Ironically enough, I was reading an article how the Trump building at 40 Wall Street is on the lender's radar right now because the debt service on that building now is below 1%, below a 1.0. And as a result of COVID and other factors and people, a lot of folks just not coming back to work, that building looks like it might go into a distressful situation, especially if they can't get the occupancy up, the value of the building is going to drop from a cash flow standpoint, which means it's going to be thrown into default once that mortgage matures. So using that kind of as an example, Quinn, I think that that's exactly what's going to happen. I think you're going to have a lot of individuals that have uh, financed when the, the economy was even hotter. And now that it's cooled down, you know, those numbers might not pencil any longer and they can't get that financing on the backside in order to exit the deal. And if that's the case, the only thing that can happen is the bank can foreclose. So, you know, I think it's a great time to, to put your dry powder on the side for your value add deals. And with that being said, I think that that's why a lot of the private equity funds now are basically making the bar even higher for development deals so that some of that money could be applied toward value add deals and they can still get those returns uh, for people that are able to buy those distressed assets pretty low. So I think that's what's going to happen. All right. So let's talk quickly about some of the issues that. Uh, individuals are facing. The majority of deals that you'll come across out here, you have multiple buckets of capital, right? You have capital that's bank capital, you have mid-market capital, and you have private money, okay? Those are the three areas on the debt side. So you have banks, what I call soft money, and then you have hard money or private money that's in the marketplace. So those are really the three tiers. On the equity side, you really have two different, and, and there's a lot of variables here, but I'm, I'm just going to simplify it to two different tiers. You have the institutional capital, and then you have the smaller tier capital, we'll call it that, and then you have friends and family capital, all right? So those are the three tiers. Now, the institutional capital, those are the ones that will jump in, they'll write the big check, and that's where you see a lot of activity. You see these big deals going on and you're like, okay, how in the world did they get, you know, $50 million of equity, $80 million of equity? Well, those institutional lenders, which are your insurance companies, your pension funds, your uh, uh, unions, 
these type of places will put out those big equity checks. And the idea behind it is I've got to spend, to your point, Uriah, I've got to get a billion dollars out on the street, right? It's much easier for me to underwrite 10 deals than underwrite 100 deals. So I'll take the 10 best top deals, the big deals, I'll put that money out and I'll get those deals funded. Now, what happens when you're a guy who wants money that's less than $20 million? That's less than $10 million, right? You might have a deal where you need $5 million in equity. Do you have enough friends and family that you could call on to say, hey, give me $5 million so I can get this deal done? And if you do, how long will it take to raise that $5 million, right? If you're somebody just getting started in the business, it could be very, very difficult to do that. Now, if you're looking at that lower tier, that's generally your friends and family. I would say that that would be anything less than maybe one to $2 million in equity, where you can call on friends and family to maybe pull some money out of their self-directed IRA, their self-directed 401k, and put that money into a deal that you may have. But if you're looking to only raise a million dollars of equity in a deal, you're probably doing a two, three, four million dollar deal, right? You're not doing a big, big deal, which means you're looking at smaller units and everything else. So, you know, how do you really get going? It's tough. It is a challenge. And I will be the first to say there's a gap in the market right now of people that are willing to write equity checks below five million dollars, a lot of times below 10 million. There's just a glut in the market where that money's not available. So what happens is that you have your GP equity, which is really the sponsor and and his friends and family, if you will. Then you have the limited partner equity. Those are the bigger checks. Generally, 90% of the equity in your deal is going to be from LP investors. That's your limited partners. And then that's going to fit on top of the capital stack, on top of the debt that you're beginning from a bank or whatever the case might be in a development deal. So what I've seen some people do specifically is, number one, friends and family, crowdfunding. Some people flip homes, you know, and get $100,000, dollars $300,000 off of some flips, and they use that money as their equity to go into a, a co-GP deal. You know, that's a way to do it. And like I said, if you have people who have been working on a job for a long time and they have a 401k IRA, they can put that money to work. And friends and family, doctors, other professionals that might be willing to write a check for two, $300,000 and kind of get you up to that one to $2 million tier. And then once you have that, you can generally get LP equity around 10 million is kind of the floor. And that will help you get into some bigger deals. So just think of it this way real quick to kind of give you a scenario. If you got a million dollars of GP equity, you might have a deal where you're raising, you know, let's just say 9 million for simple math in um, LP equity, all right, just for simple math. So now you're at 10 million in equity. And if you look at the overall deal, you might be doing a, you know, $25 million deal maybe, or $22 million deal, something like that, where you'll be, you know, putting in that type of equity. So how do you get that done? You know, that's how you get it done. The last thing I want to say about that is there are emerging manager private equity funds that are out there. Some have been extremely criticized as of late because they'll set this fund up as an emerging manager fund. And then the first thing they'll say is, well, we're not going to do your first deal. So it's like, okay, well, I'm an emerging manager. (laughs) Isn't that what the money is supposed to be for? It's supposed to help me emerge 
and get some stuff done, right? But a lot of them will say, we're not going to do your first deal. So, you know, it's kind of, Uriah, as you mentioned earlier, the chicken and the egg. So the only thing you can really do in a case like that, I would say, is start off with smaller value-add deals where you can get a distressed owner to stay in the deal, contribute equity, whether it be land, if it's development, or if it's, um, you know, maybe their equity in the property in a multifamily deal or something like that, they can contribute that equity. And then, you know, just try to start building it up. And then you also have some private money investors that do debt, but that will also consider equity in certain cases as well. There's a few guys out there that would do that as well. So those are some things to look at, you know, and we might be able to help. So, you know, that's, that's a space that we're in. So, you know, we might be able to provide some insight on that. Okay. All right. Also, great insight there, Joe. Yeah. All right. So anything else? Um, let's see, Quinn. Yeah, thanks, Quinn. I appreciate that, you know, putting that there. And, you know, we want to continue to share what we can. Because, again, I, I see the gap between the the Reese, uh, not the Reese, but the um, the REAP students, you know, and, and others that are at that level, if you will. And then the, you know, Victor McFarlane's of the world and some of these other guys that are just doing billions of dollars in deals. And it's like, you know, how did they get there? But be persistent, always raising capital. Right. You need to have your capital before you have your deal. So always be raising capital, you know, look for creative ways to to get deals done. I, w- I want to advertise one book as well. I get no kickback on this. I probably need to call and, and get a kickback. But one of the best books I ever read was by um, Damon John of FUBU. And his book is The Power of Broke. And I thought it was really good because he gave the example of himself. He gave the example of Spanx. He gave the example of Under Armour and a few other companies, how these guys started off with zero and basically built empires in business. And it can be done in real estate by starting with zero and using OPM, other people's money, to get deals done. I even know some folks that can do flip, fix and flip deals with uh, zero down payments. And so, you know, that helps your return, obviously, immensely if you have a zero down payment. So, there's a lot that, that can be made available uh, if you have a, a need for that. So anything else you want to add, Uriah, to that? Or I can get Quinn's question here. Yeah, I was actually going to tap into Quinn's question as well. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. Office deals seem to be the toughest to get debt on from an underwriting perspective. Any asset class that you are seeing is most bankable or at least, or least cumbersome to get financing. Yeah, Quinn, that's spot on. Office is very difficult because there's still this um, fear as to what it's going to look like, right? You know, if, if what if we have another surge in COVID toward the end of the year, right? We don't know if people are ever going to come back to work. And so many people are affected working across Zoom, you know, and remotely. It's like if you got a computer and a phone, do you really need an office? So, you know, I don't know. I think office is going to continue to be tough. Retail is going to be tough as well, other than the things that we discussed early in the call. If it's a retail where you're providing a service that you can't get online. So because of that, I think the areas that are still going to be hot, at least for the foreseeable future, is um, industrial and multifamily. You know, industrial, be a little careful, though, because um, even Amazon, you know, they started scaling back in the amount of places that they were signing leases on. So you know, there, there's a little bit going on there. The tech sector has laid off a lot of jobs. You know, I wouldn't go all out necessarily on industrial, but if you see a good deal, jump on it. 
And if you're doing industrial, look for areas on uh, major traffic ways, you know, major interstates near um, airport hubs, transportation hubs, places like that are, are really good for, for industrial. Any thoughts on EV parking lots, charging station storage? Yeah, those are going to be big money makers. We're actually doing a self-storage deal right now up in North Carolina. So I think those are going to continue to be hot, you know, because especially if people can't buy new homes, self-storage is going to really be in play, you know, because they're going to still keep buying stuff and where you're going to put it. So, you know, good point. Thanks for bringing that up, Quinn. Good point. Yeah. Great feedback, great insight for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, guys, we got about five more minutes. Um, anything else that uh you would like to hear addressed before we um we wrap up for the day? I know we covered a lot of ground, but uh, you know, this podcast is is really for the audience, you know, and to provide some insight kind of behind the curtain as to what it takes to get deals done. So anything else? Do you want to cover anything else you write that you think we didn't cover that we need to cover? Um, I think that one of the other things that we spoke about was just the importance of relationship building, always being building relationships, always being in that mode of building relationships and constantly being in networking mode and how important that is. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um very, very important. I'll be honest with you, there's an organization that I joined. Actually, they're coming up on their 20th anniversary. So I was <laughs> a member probably when there was like 16 individuals, like in year three. <laughs> and I, I had a wrong mindset at the time. You know, imagine I was about 20 years younger and, you know, my mindset was like, you know, why am I paying to be part of this organization? I'm not getting no business out of it. Right. And I actually left it. And years later, I saw how that organization continued to grow and morph and change and really grow. And me jumping back in being able to pick up on relationships that I had with these individuals 15, 20 years ago has been immeasurable because now when I pick up the phone and call, it's not, who is this? You know, who are you with? And what do you want? You know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, what's up, Joe? How you doing? You know, how's this? How's that? Right. And you have that kind of conversation. And, and now you're talking about, Hey, I got this deal. I need to get done. What are your thoughts? Hey, well, yeah, you could do this. You could do that. Who should I call? Yeah. We'll call so-and-so. Right. And tell them I told you to call. That's a whole lot better. But the point is, is that even though I didn't do an actual deal with this person, having that relationship with them for the last 15 years has opened up the door for me to now get a lot of things that I couldn't get if I was starting off at ground zero. So the point I was making is that it's not a mar- it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You know, you're not going to walk into some meeting, hand out a few business cards and get a billion dollar deal. You know, it's usually not going to happen that way. But the person that you met five years ago and kept in touch with might be the one that knows somebody that knows somebody that can actually hook you up. So keep in touch with your database. You know, when I was working on Wall Street, we used to say that the most valuable thing you could have is your Rolodex. And today, them contacts in your cell phone, um, make sure you lock those names and numbers in and keep in touch with people because um, it will pay dividends down the road. Absolutely. Great point there, Joel. Yeah. This has been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Quinn, when is going to be the, the next session? You know, we're, we're out of our doldrums. Um, as you know, we changed the meeting to Wednesday at noon, 9 a.m. Pacific, in order to get more guests from the West Coast to come on the show and also to make it available 
for individuals during their lunch break and to make it, again, easier for folks on the West Coast. So as of right now, we're continuing to build out the calendar. If you know of individuals and guests that you think would be of value to be on the show, we'll ask you to, to email us. And we would like to um, talk and interview those persons and see if we can bring them on. The person who's running that will be April Santiago. April, if you're there, what's your extension again, April? 107. Okay, great. So you could call the main office, 770-76. I'll put it in the chat. April, can you put that in the chat for us? Yeah, call the office and uh, you know let us know the person or email April, april.santiago at wscf.net. And, um, you know, we will uh, get that person on. So next week, we have um, two individuals tentatively scheduled from the Black Chamber of Commerce. So that should be a very interesting conversation. And we have a lot of good stuff coming up um, as well. So we wanted you to look forward to some of the upcoming broadcasts. And we should be here next Wednesday at 12 noon also. Lastly, Will Smith, you had a question. Um, are there any investment groups for people that are not sophisticated but want to tap into some real estate deals? <laughs> Where can we find they? Okay, it could be a good place to invest in learning, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's very interesting, Will. There, we are opening up this to all of the major trade associations, and having them on might be a way to give you some insight as to, you know, which groups would be good for that. But I would say, you know, get in with those trade organizations and start networking with individuals. That would probably be the best thing to do. And again, it's just going to take time. Some are much more sophisticated and you'll kind of feel like a fish out of water if you walk into those. But, you know, you're going to have to just kind of give that a try. Let me ask this of, um, you know, we we have um, Deneen on the line, Uriah, Quinn. What would you guys say to that? What are, what are some good trade organizations? CCIM, okay. Oh, yeah, CCIM. That'll be um, real good. CCIM is great. Eli, NAOP. I think okay. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So any of those, you know, it, it could wind up costing you a lot of money to join all these trade organizations, but, you know, go to many free things as you can. <laughs> so you can, uh, you know, as you get going. So we appreciate that. But, um, but guys, we have a lot coming down the pipe. Also, um, this podcast is actually going to be converting over into a membership site as well. And when I say membership, I mean a forum where you can communicate with each other about deals and have access to a lot of the guests that we had on the show. So we want to introduce that as well. And hopefully that will be a forum also, Will, where you can get to um, introduce yourself to more people and learn more about getting deals done. So hopefully that will work as well. That's something that we're working on as to why we were delayed also in getting the show launched. Anyway, that's it for today. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so very much. Uriah, any closing comments for us? No, great interview, Joe. Thank you for allowing me to interview you. And I'm um, looking forward to you having a very successful series of, of upcoming sessions and podcasts. This is great. All right. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate all you guys being here. Thank you so very much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Take care, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to write a brief review. And as always, continue to invite, share, and subscribe.